Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about the style of the liturgy, according to Romano Guardini, who we talked about a few podcasts ago. Also, this week's question comes from somebody who wants to know what books they should read if they want to dive deeper into liturgy. So I went ahead and put a link on liturgyguys.com at the very top that goes to our reading list, and I will put a link in the description of the podcast. So without further ado, episode 34 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Something good could come out of that, I think. I don't know. Just keep going until something happens. <laughs> Chris, I like your style. Your wife likes my style. She's always asking you to take my clothes home when I don't want them anymore. Now, every time I get rid of old clothes, I say, oh, Chris, will this fit you? And she, he takes it home and his wife is like, oh, yeah, you need more clothes like that. Dennis's particularity somehow captures your universality. Mm. So are you saying that your style is better than Chris's style? It just means well, we're it, so unified. No, I'll say thought. that. <laughs> <laughs> but you talked about you know wearing clothes and somebody saying, "Oh, that's so you." You know that encapsulates. Right, it captures your. It's this universal capturing of your particularity. It, there's a funny play between universality and particularity. What's the universality of a football player? But the, it's like that's the that's the football player. But then there's one individual personality mm-hmm. on the on the team or whatever. So liturgically, there's some. Correspondence is there too. Yeah. Uh, Robano Gardini tries to sort all this out in one of his chapters in The Spirit of the Liturgy. The Spirit of the Liturgy. The Spirit of the Liturgy. That's right. Have we talked about that before? I don't think so. Probably not enough. The Spirit of the Liturgy. Well, I mean, what is a more influential uh, work than than that? I mean, uh, Mystical Body, Mystical Voice. Yeah, besides that one. Okay. But yeah, he's trying to, uh, and and, uh, admittedly, as we've talked in preparation for this podcast, uh, it's a little difficult to sort out what it is he's trying to say about style in a universal sense and style in a more particular sense, like when you're talking about... We'd probably just give up and then do another topic. Well, we we, we could, but it's worth, I think it's worth the effort (laughs) because... It's, uh, it's applicable to things even uh, today. And the first two sentences of his chapter can throw you, because the first sentence says, style is chiefly spoken of in a universal sense. And then the second sentence says, by style, we understand those particular characteristics. Don't. So is it particular or is it universal? What are we can talking we, can about? We, can you define those particular and universal relative to liturgy so that I can understand what we're talking well, about? Yeah. Before we get to that, I mean, he, what does he mean by style in a universal sense? I think what he's getting at is when we say style in the... Maybe it's the difference between the, you know, what's the expression about losing the forest for the trees? Uh, the you can't style, see the forest through the trees. That's not what it means. Oh. The style in the universal sense is something that transcends any particular individual or time or place or culture or epoch. It's something that, um, while it exists in and can be applied to 
uh, an epoch. It does it to all of them. And so it has a type of transcendent, universally applied character, style in that sense. Right. There's kind of the idea of a thing, which includes every possible way that that idea could take form in real life. So there's curiousness, right? Then Palestrina writes one, and Haydn writes one, and Adam Bartlett writes one, and they're all curious. They all have the curiousness, but each one is particular, even as it's universal. Mm-hmm. So does each one have its own style? Is that what you're saying, too? Well, this is maybe style in the second sense. I mean, so there's, there's kind of a universal sense of style that can be applicable, you know, uh, across the board. But then there's a narrower sense of style that, I don't know if he would use this word or does use the word, but there's more of an emphasis or a, a, an attention to or concentration on the particular. Okay? So a particular, uh, more specific example that is, uh, that is maybe more time-bound and... Uh, circumstance bound and uh, is historically bound, personally bound. So it's style in a much narrower sense. It's not um, as equally applicable to to other things as style in the universal sense. And do we have both of those in the liturgy, the universal and the particular? We should, yeah. Yeah, well, we certainly have both of those in the, I mean, what, what, where Garnini is going to take this chapter, the style and the liturgy, he's going to, he's, eventually going to say, well, what, which of those two, style in the more universal sense or style in the more particular sense, applies to the liturgy? And in a certain way, um, they both do, but the liturgy Spoiler is, an, alert. Come on. is an example, really, of style in the more universal sense. But at the same time, it's always expressed in a time and place by a certain people. So you could have a French tradition for how liturgy is done. It has to be part of the universal liturgical tradition or it would be invalid, but it still has its own particularity, even as it applies to the whole nation and the whole church. So he has a a line where he says, um, the more corporate it is, the more it's relation to corporate life, that is that everybody can participate in it, then to that extent it may may be said to have style. In this universal sense, because it has to be able to cover and encompass all of the individuals beneath it. He mentions at one point how... Christ is characterized in uh, the Gospels and in the liturgy. Would this be a helpful in- illustration to what he's getting at sure. in style? So he says, uh, for example, it, it, he recognized this is this is a this is a difficult uh, uh, concept to come at. I'm says, struggling very much. <laughs> okay. So let's maybe yeah. maybe this will help. <laughs> he says, consider how Jesus is depicted in the Gospels versus how Jesus comes to us in the liturgy. So he says this about Jesus in the Gospels. He says, in the Gospels, everything is alive. This would be style in the narrower sense. He says, everything is alive. The reader breathes the air of the earth. He sees Jesus of Nazareth walking about the streets and among the people. He hears his incomparable and persuasive words and is aware of the heart-to-heart intercourse between Jesus and his followers. The charm of vivid actuality pervades the historical portrait of Christ. He is so entirely one of us, a real person, Jesus, the carpenter's son, who lived in Nazareth in a certain street, wore certain clothes, and spoke in a certain manner. This uh, is what he's talking about, style in that particular particular sense. sense. But if you weren't alive in 30 AD... You might have missed all that. So how do we all then encounter and this? And I was not alive in 30 AD. So compare this then, he says, to how Jesus um, appears in the liturgy. And this is what he means by style in the more universal sense. 
He says, see how differently Jesus appears in the liturgy. There, he's the sovereign mediator between God and man, the eternal high priest, the divine teacher, the judge of the living and the dead. In his body, hidden in the Eucharist, he mystically unites all the faithful to the great society that is the church. He is the God-man, the word that was made flesh. Um, Let's see. Uh, He is truly and wholly human with a body and a soul which have actually lived, but they are now utterly transformed by the Godhead, wrapped into the light of eternity and remote from time and space. He is the Lord sitting at the right hand of the Father, the mystic Christ living on in his church. Now, Jesse, you've been listening to that. Right, so do you see uh, the differences? Yeah, I like that one a lot better. (laughs) But see, he took a form, a particular human form in right. a particular time and place in a culture that would understand him, but he couldn't stay limited to that reality. And sometimes people get this confused. They say things like, well, Jesus never wore vestments or Jesus never used chalices. With what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do is a reasonable question, except he veiled his glory and only appeared for 33 years, but that's not his full identity. If we want to see the full identity of Christ, we have to see him in his eschatological And there's the transfiguration, glory. which was a foretaste a of that. A moment of it, Yeah. yeah. Um, but if we want the liturgy to be about the earthy Jesus with the you know burlap, this, and okay. the wooden table, then we're limiting it to his one particular reality rather than his full cosmic reality. So I think I know where this is going. This is good. Well, because, we'll see if you do. Where? Well, where are we going? Well, so the, so the universal style, I would say, if probably takes precedent because we talk about, um, a lot, we've talked a lot about different liturgical issues. Sometimes we've answered questions about liturgy. But when all, it all comes down to it, um, you know, the Mass is the Mass, regardless of whether or not some of the particular elements of the liturgy are not, you know, I guess congruent with what the church teaches or congruent with what our opinions are, um, obviously, <laughs> depending, on, depending on some things. But the universality of the style of the liturgy is what unites us as the, the church. Yeah, I think you're getting to it. Let's back up a little bit more. Okay. So Jesus, as depicted in the Gospels, or Jesus as he appears in the liturgy, which one is correct? For what? Liturgical right. expression? Oh, no, no, just generally. Which which one do we need? Which one is correct for the Christian life of prayer? Okay, my answer is both, right? Right. It's that both, both ands. <laughs> damnable both ands. Damnisha catholica unt. Yes. That's <laughs> I couldn't have exactly said that better myself. Everything sounds more forceful in German. Right. So which which uh, how, which of those two Christ? Of course, they're not two Christ. There's one Christ. Wh- which one do we need in our spiritual life and our life of prayer? We need both. We need both. Absolutely. But one is more emphasized in the liturgical setting, and the other is more emphasized in the devotional, devotional life and, of the church, and personal oh, prayer. So, oh, sacred head surrounded, and you see the little bust of Christ with the bleeding. That's a great thing to ponder. His sacrifice, his human ability to feel pain, all of that. In heaven, though, we're talking about. This is the Jesus who's going to put you know and, Satan and, back in and hell forever eternal. and live in this glorious eternity and take us with him. Yeah. Well, again, think of the think of those words that he uses to describe the liturgical Christ: sovereign, eternal, divine, mystical, transformed. Right. Uh, this is Christ in his uh, more universal sense. But we can't have that as as uh, we can't have simply that. Otherwise, he says in another place in the spirit of the liturgy. It's unattainable. It's too, it'd be too much for us. to. It's too beyond. Right, exactly. It's too, uh, in a certain sense, it's too inhuman. We need something more, uh, I don't mean mundane in the pejorative sense. We need something more 
uh, filled with flesh and bones yeah. and earthy and earthly and familiar, human and heartfelt. Familiar to our right. experience, to our senses. Right. And so this, notice the words he uses to describe, uh, you know, Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, he is about the streets and among the people. He is entirely one of us uh, and our own certain culture, right? So this is the more imminent Christ that comes to us. And both of those things are required in a, uh, in a sound, healthy, robust spiritual life. Uh, liturgy without the devotional life is too, he'll say in another place, is too, uh, it's too lifeless. Uh, but the devotional life without the liturgical life, and this is really what he was talking about in, in his time, there was such an emphasis on the devotional life and such little participation and understanding in the liturgical life. Uh, it, it lacks uh, discipline and transcendence. Uh, now we're kind of in the other place, but both of these things are necessary. So would it be fair to say that the narrow sense of Christ here on earth, flesh and bone, you know, Christ as man, would it be fair to say that that's always pointing towards the universal style of, of Christ? It's one facet of his fuller reality that's but isn't very that, tangible isn't that, to us. Isn't that where like, the trajectory that we're aiming, that he's always pointing towards? Well, sort of, what's the, the, what's the, the line from uh, Irenaeus? Why, God became man... So that man might become right. God. So there was a there was a condescension and an incarnation for, of the eternal God to us, but he didn't stay here. All right, he ascended back. I mean, he's still with us, but he right. ascended well, what, back to. That's the aim. Right? Yeah, and so he came down to uh, um, you know gather us to himself and to take us into the eternal, the mystical, uh, the transcendent, uh, the internal. Yeah. So there is kind of that uh, trajectory of things heading for the eschaton. You know, one uh, commentator or theologian said, you know, why would you limit uh, your experience of Christ to 33 years? He's so much more than the 33 years, you know, of which you know. It's like 102, at least, years of experience. <laughs> uh, you know, and of those 30 years, 33 years, how many of those are recounted to you in, uh, in the scriptures? Three. Uh, and even less than that. Yeah, probably. I mean, so it's a, it's a real restriction on your encounter with this person to limit, uh, as important as this is, but to, to let that be all that there is. But if all you thought Jesus was was this remote, faraway God who was, um, you know, sitting on the throne of gems and lightning bolts coming out, you're like, I don't know if I can relate to that guy. So the, you know, we lead up from the natural to our understanding of the supernatural, or you can say, I start with the supernatural and bring it down to, to the, the natural. Uh, in either case, liturgy, though, tends to emphasize the glorified, the perfected, the universal, not just as our image of Christ, but how we do things. So we dress a certain way, we move a certain way, we sing a certain way. The choice of words we use is not casual. You might have been able to walk up to Jesus in Galilee and say, hey, Rabbi, I've got this pain in my side. Heal me, please, you know, or get, ask for a fish or something. But liturgically, you don't do that. Liturgical stuff is much more about this elevated way of prefiguring your own experience of elevated existence with this. If you don't mind, can I, let, me go, let me go back to, his, uh, to the text here, because he recognizes that this is a problem. And it, it, it's a problem for all of us. Uh, it's a struggle. You know, like what, a paradox? Uh, is it a, uh, well, it's, um, you know, because both of us, Humanity needs both of these elements, the imminent and the transcendent, you know, the specific mm -hmm. and the universal. And I mean, we'll see this in, um, you know, Je Dennis, you started to get to this. We'll see this. I mean, this is a tension still today in the liturgy. Should church architecture look uh, imminent and mundane and earthly 
and particular oh, yeah. and localized, okay. or should it have a sense of otherworldliness about it, transcendence about it? Sh- same way with art, same way with language. I mean, these questions about uh, the translation in, uh, of, uh, you know, there's this, uh, apparently this commission that's uh, uh, been called together to review some of the principles of Liturgiam Authenticum. And when people comment on, you know, how the Roman Missal sounds in its translation, I mean, I think you could look at that through these two types of lenses. Uh, one group wishes the translation would sound more uh, like we talk in uh, United States of America in 2017. And also with you. <laughs> right. We don't talk that way, right? <laughs> so why are we saying things like that in the liturgy? Whereas another group wishes to emphasize more of that uh, eternal, timeless, supernatural element. Again, li- li- so this has always been um, you know, an issue, and Gardini speaks of the same thing back in his uh, cha- uh, text, The Spirit of the Liturgy. He says, It cannot be denied that great difficulties lie in the question of the adaptability of the liturgy to every individual, and even more especially to the modern man. The latter wants to find in prayer, particularly if he has an independent turn of mind, the direct expression of his spiritual condition. Yet in the liturgy, he's expected to accept, as the mouthpiece of his inner life, a system of ideas, prayer, and action which is too highly generalized and, as it were, unsuited to him. It strikes him as being formal and almost meaningless. He is especially sensible of this when he compares the liturgy with the natural outpourings of spontaneous prayer, Liturgical formulas, unlike the language of a person who is spiritually congenial, are not to be grasped straight away without any further mental exertion on the listener's part. You can take my word for it or his, but we're, we're getting to the same thing. You know, that liturgical language is like the liturgical Christ, transcendent, eternal, more universally applied, and is not meant to and never has been meant to address the specific individual cultural yearnings of a given time and place. Except that it does in certain ways. It takes everybody's individual up into a universal reality, even though it doesn't say, hey, you in the front row with your particular you know, stomach virus today, I'm here for you. That's a weird, weird way to talk about Everybody's it. got their but particular it would be, issues. It right? would be pretty impossible to fully do that, right? To, you know, make everything, you know, in, in the earthly sense to the way what, that we do it. Yeah, make the... To make it wouldn't, the be, celebra- well, uh, wouldn't uh, be universal across cultures. Well, one of you uh, said it earlier about, um, you know, individuals come together in a corpus, into a body. That so was me. Ha- that Sounds was like something point. I yeah. would say. So it has to be able to account for uh, everyone together. And it can't speak in the particular style that each individual wishes. Which means basically every personal preference you have is not the thing you have to force upon everybody else. You have to come Dennis. to... Dennis... <laughs> <laughs> I know. You have to come to the liturgy as it exists and as it's given to us and then uh, apply yourself to it, except where there are permissions to do individual Which is really hard to do when you study the liturgy and know, know things and don't see things being done the way that you're learning them. Or the other way around, which is you have to study the liturgy, but you have a bunch of strong opinions anyway. Correct. And you don't want the people who do have the learning to but force the, you what to do. All the more reason to have that universality as kind of the focal point because then we can remove ourselves from it and truly be in that, you know, foretaste of the heavenly Jerusalem and you're, you're talking about this, you know. Yeah, well, in fact, isn't, is it, in this chapter, he talks about the person who lives in the liturgy is like visiting um, high society. 
you know, where you, you kind of, you leave your individual foibles and quirks. Now we're not, we're supposed to bring these with us, but we're supposed to, in a certain way, check them. You walk and you live in, uh, in a different sphere for, for a while. This is my chance to talk about Downton Abbey again, right? Because the, the oh, Irish yeah. Irish chauffeur marries into the British aristocratic, aristocratic family, and he doesn't know how to do anything. He doesn't know which spoon to use and which glass to use. He doesn't know how to call the lady countess or duchess or whatever. And he feels like an outsider, but eventually he comes around to learning their ways and develops. Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, the show's been over for several years now. Um, but anyway, he's brought into something. I still something. don't know who shot JD in Dallas. Or that was J.R. See, exactly. <laughs> Anyway, the point is he wasn't comfortable with it at first, um, but eventually he learns to live in this elevated way. Now, whether you know the secular co- correspondence is good, we have an elevated way in heaven. In fact, in this chapter, um, Gordini says that the liturgy concentrates its whole attention on the hereafter. It always aspires from this world to the next. And the natural result is that all our little human traits become superhuman traits. They become glorified and sublime, and that's how you learn to be more than who you are. So you have to be called up to the higher... Uh, pre-existing reality except yeah. for in Downton Abbey that was a disappearing reality that they were trying to hold on to because spoiler they, alert I'm oh, okay. sorry <laughs> all right anyway <laughs> but again the the point of his of his chapter here is, is both of these um, both of these types of prayer personal and devotional as well as liturgical are necessary uh, in in the Christian life and in the life of the church but the liturgy is not meant to and hasn't been meant to address both of those things at all times. You know, a, a, a personal and family devotional life is necessary. So to, with its, where you can talk to Jesus in any way you want, in any words you want, in any style you want. About anything you about want. About anything you want, exactly. Or just sit in silence with him. But it's also necessary that we step into a world where we encounter uh, the eternal Christ, and are led, you know, beyond our own particularities into um, in, into the eternity, which will which will uh, hopefully uh, exist in, uh, um, in in the days to come. Would that be a fault of ours if we tried to take that eternity and bring it closer to us because we wanted, you know, to be to be wanted it to be more human, in the sense that we're human and emotional, in the sense that we're emotion. Would that be a fault, uh, you know, in your... I think it'd be more a fault to take your own particular and say that's universal and make everybody okay. do it. To try to bring universality down to you, I think it's good. It's how you form, how you grow outside of yourself. But to say, well, I like this, therefore everyone should do it, that's a problem. You're, not, you're taking your particular and universalizing it, your particular style, and saying that's the best way for everybody. The, guide, the guidelines always are the norms of the church and the liturgical books which try to take into account the whole world. That's why there's so many options in the, in the general instruction in this country and that country. There are particular permissions, but also this or similar thing. They always say that because in different cultures it might be uh, very different looking, but it's all part of the same idea. Yeah, but think of, um, you know, just to, to make the same point, so the, the, the rubrics that you're explaining kind of keep the liturgy at this universal and universally applied level. But think of the various types of devotions and even how many different forms a particular devotion can legitimately take. I think how many versions there are of the... Marian devotions. Of Marian devotions, or even... Uh, or the Stations of the Cross. Well, and how many, yeah, how many different ways can you pray the Stations of the Cross? A lot. Sure, there, there's many ways. How many different ways can you pray the Rosary? I mean, John Paul II introduced a, 
kind of a new method for praying the rosary? How many different versions of the morning offering are there? And these are all legitimate, and they're meant to. They're supposed to be diverse. Uh, they're meant to address the particular needs of individual people. And you might not need the same type of devotional particular expression that I do or that Dennis does. A family will have a different type of devotional prayer than a single person does or a religious does. And that is in no way bad. That is just the way it is meant to be. But the liturgy is not like is not entirely like that. It is supposed to supply that universal uh, dimension to our prayer life. Not everything can be like private devotions. Not everything can be as universal as but the liturgy. But strangely, what seemed to happen after the council was they said, get rid of devotions because they're not liturgical. Liturgy's higher and better, which it is. But what happened is the liturgy start getting devotional. We started putting all these extra things, devotional, you know, human-based emotional songs. We started having these therapeutic models of mass. Oh, I'm so happy to be here with you today. We're happy to be with you too, Father. And it was this personal expression. And if it's not universal, then you, if you're not part of the club, you can feel left out of those kinds of things. So keep your devotional things devotional, your liturgical things devotional, liturgical. And his uh, worry, at least what Guardini says, uh, is will this not make the liturgy seem cold and aloof and distant? To a certain extent, it will. But then you fill it up with devotional things outside of the liturgical time, or you have the permitted local variations. It just makes me understand how big the liturgy actually is, because that's, that's a, I think, for me at least, a natural desire to understand my devotional life and try to you know, plug that into the liturgy because that's how I've developed my relationship with Christ in whatever way, you know. But um, but this conversation has led me to believe that the liturgy is way bigger than that and there's way more things going on. That's exactly what he says. It says it leads the individual soul to learn more about the wider and more spacious world. So imagine you grow up in a parish and they always sing the same mass setting every week and nothing else. And then you go to another parish and they sing something else. You're like, Whoa, there's more than one option. Then you learn the Latin chants that have been, been sung since the 6th century. Wow, now it's not just the neighboring parish. It's the whole history of the church over centuries. It's a wide, spacious world of all the possibilities. And then you get to see the liturgy in all of its different facets. And you kind of relinquish yourself and what you want. Absolutely. And you leave that at the door, and then you plug yourself into the universal. And this is that John the Baptist, you know, I must decrease and he must increase, which is, which is really great. Uh, I think, image for this attitude. Well, it's kind of, that kind of sums up the uh, Christian life is uh, right. uh, not, not, uh, not my will, but thine be done. That's, mm-hmm. that's the rub of everything. And it really always uh, comes down to that. And why would any of us want to stay small? You know, oh, let's just do my little provincial narrow little thing that I've learned. No, I want to get bigger. I want to know more, learn more, get bigger in the spiritual life. He talks about it being the grand manner of the spiritual life, which is, living life to the full to the stature of christ that's the christian mission very big and so you need your devotional stuff to support you but you also need your liturgical asceticism to bring you to something stronger and bigger than yourself Hmm. well how did we how did we do after uh uh, well i'll tell you you is is it clear now it really is actually and (laughs) like full disclosure I was like, I don't know what you guys were talking about in the beginning of this or where we're going or how I could even contribute to the conversation. But it really does hone in that idea because um, I, I talked to you a lot about this, Chris, the difference between devotion and liturgy. And this really clears that up a lot. And it, it shows you that everything has a time and a place. 
and liturgy is liturgy, devotion is devotion. And that was something that, I, to my knowledge or to my understanding, pre-Vatican II uh, was getting kind of, the wires are getting crossed there. People were doing devotional things during the liturgy. Yeah, we still have wires crossed in certain areas as well, uh, different wires and different crossings. Mm-hmm. It's not entirely clear. That's why this, this chapter by uh, Gardini is still relevant today. But if it was a little confusing in the beginning and ended with some clarity, we've at least uh, echoed his chapter. Which itself rightly. is confusing. It is <laughs> very confusing. Hey, but this, uh, if you don't have this book on the shelf, um, it's available for free on a number of sites uh, online. If you wanted to EWTN go, has it. Right, yeah. right. And so this is The Spirit of the Liturgy in Gardini's... No. It's The Spirit of the Liturgy is the book. The, this particular chapter is called The Style of the Liturgy. So go and give it a read uh, for yourself and see... Um, uh, see what you think and how it might uh, uh, be applicable in your own parish or personal life. All right. So I think it's time for us to answer a liturgy question, right. which is usually a particular. But yes. we answer very generally. And we answer with the universal principles. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium. But it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend a liturgical institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week we have a question from Jesse. Jesse says, Hi, do you guys have a top 10 list of books about liturgy or any good book recommendations? I love your podcast and want to dig in a bit. I love the notion of ontology as well and would like to learn more. Oh, Jesse. It's not me. Awesome. Yeah. Although yeah. I do love all of those things that he said. Ontology or she. But this is a question that we've gotten a lot. If people want to dive deeper into uh, liturgy because they listen to the podcast or mm. some of our other content at the Liturgical Institute. But uh, what, what other resources do you guys have? I always say go to the church documents. So Sacrosanctum Concilium, the General Instruction of the Roman Missal, uh, Trilus of Lecitudini, God bless you. Uh, all these other ones. Listen but to him go on these, on these documents. <laughs> I've learned some things. I'm learned now. But what what do you guys say? It's an embarrassment of riches. There's so much to say. I mean, a really good place to start is the section on liturgy in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's pretty readable, you know, and it's uh, you can go from one thing to the next. Very very thorough. And it's not. A, it's beautiful too. I mean, it's not a dry read. There, it's, it's beautifully rich and, and very well, uh, uh, very nicely written. So yeah, I, that that's a standard. Uh, maybe related to that is uh, they say this uh, Father John Corbon mm-hmm. uh, wrote a book called The Wellspring of Worship, and right. he's uh, is he attributed with writing? I don't think the section on liturgy, maybe the one uh, on prayer in the Catechism. Uh, yeah. He's he, not supposed. We're not supposed to know who did. Oh, right, it, but right. rumors are that he was very. Oh, influential. I didn't know that. That's a thing. 
Yeah, whenever anybody writes an official church document, somebody's got to write it, but they don't want it to become anybody's particular book. It was know. either him or you. But I, couldn't I, I can neither <laughs> confirm nor deny that I wrote that section. <laughs> I of the doubt that it was Dennis. Okay, but anyway, there's so many things. So that's a, that's a good one for mm-hmm. sure. There's also, you know, the great writers of the liturgical movement that informed Vatican II and informed the catechism. We've talked about Cardinal Ratzinger's book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, many, many times. Um, very readable and very, very deep. Of course, we talked about Guardini's Spirit of the Liturgy, very readable and very deep as well. You wrote a book called The Spirit of the Liturgy, too. Catholic Church Architecture and the Spirit of the Liturgy. That's right. Chris, you also wrote a book. Called The Spirit of the... No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, with Father Martis, we wrote uh, Mystical Body, Mystical Voice, which is... Uh, mystical uh, Body, Mystical Voice. Ugh. Okay, we had a little uh, NBC That definitely was my fault, but yeah. I also was not involved in that joke when it started. So, yeah, so not bad for a pickup. And, and that's an explanation of uh, the, the, the translation of the Roman Missal and getting to the sacramental meaning and what those words mean. Right, and some of the great... Contributors to this recovery were people like Virgil Michael, M-I-C-H-E-L, who was a monk of Collegeville, wrote a number of books uh, in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, he, he was not by training a, a liturgist or a sacramentalist, but was a, more of a Thomistic philosopher. And he, uh, he was also very involved in the Catholic rural life movement. And he writes in a very down-to-earth way, uh, very for, regu- for regular people. He started something called the Popular Liturgical Library in the 1920s, which was meant for regular people to learn about the liturgy. He started Liturgical Press, which is still I existence. am a regular person, so it sounds like that's right down my You're head. a lot of things, Jesse, but... Uh. <laughs> regular? I don't know. Um, they also started a journal called Orate Fratres, which is Pray Brethren. That's now called Worship. But the early uh, issues, they're all indexed in the back. If you can get to yourself to a theological library at a university or a seminary nearby, there are all these indexes in the back that say Mass, Active Participation, Architecture, Art, Vestments, from the 20s and 30s and 40s, and it all fed into Vatican II. So Orate Fratres is a journal. Um, we'll talk about some of these people in the future, hopefully, but Odo Kazel was a German monk from Maria, Maria Locke Abbey, who was described... O- Odo? O- O-D-O. Oh. Odo. I think it's like Frodo without the fro. <laughs> Frodo, Odo. Without, Frodo without the fro? <laughs> <laughs> Odo Kazel. His book is The Mystery of Christian Worship, among other things. But Cardinal Ratzinger said he was the, his ideas were the most important ideas of the whole liturgical renewal in forming Vatican II. Yeah, the liturgical movement had practitioners and pastors uh, and thinkers and bishops. He was the theologian, I think, of the liturg- liturgical right, movement. The great mind. Um, 309 works he wrote, either books or books or articles. That is a lot. And he was just a monk. Nobody knew who he was. He was just cranking away. I don't in think his, I even know that cell. many words in my vocabulary. <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> uh, you know, if you're interested in the temple, there's a, a woman named Margaret Barker. She's British. She's a Methodist minister, but single-handedly revived the whole tradition of studying the temple. There's a her introductory book is called The Gate of Heaven, and it goes through all the individual parts of the temple. So the tem- the columns outside, the big room, the little room, the ark, the, the, you know, all this little by little, very readable. Somebody who's been formative uh, for us, Dennis and Kevin, uh, was... Uh, uh, David Fagerberg. Yeah, he used to teach here, now teaches at Notre Dame. So some of his books, uh, Theologia Prima, Prima, which is a beautiful reflection on how the, the gist of it is, is that the liturgy celebrated is the first source of theology. And as you step away from that and go to the classroom or the library or whatever, you're, you're abstracting from the real source, which is the real source of theology, which is the liturgy celebrated. Right. If you wanted to learn about your wife, you wouldn't read a book about your wife. You'd go hang out with her. Mm-hmm. And then you might read a book about her life. If somebody so. wrote a book about my wife, I would have some choice words about said author. But anyway. Well, they would have to meet her to know yeah, what she's that's like, true. right? That's true. 
Um, he wrote, also wrote a book about liturgical time, which is very, very good, very readable. Another one on liturgical asceticism, which is kind of a big, serious book. But basically, the liturgy has a pre-existing reality that forms you, and it's kind of an exercise in being formed by it rather than just proclaiming out from you whatever you wish it were. Yeah, and related to that, kind of as a sequel, is called uh, Consecrating the World on Mundane Liturgical Theology. Mundane? How boring. <laughs> it's anything but. No. He explains what happens in the sanctuary is like an explosion and the sanctuary and the nave of the church are like the blast walls that force the explosion out the, the front doors of the church into the world so that right. it can be consecrated That's and incredible. Made. Wow. Yeah. Mundi, like Exus Mundi means those are crossroads of, still of the world. Yeah, still yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. That book came out, I think, last year, maybe two years ago. It's yeah, beautiful. one of the books that was very helpful to me, too, was Yves Congar, C-O-N-G-A-R, Eve, like... Y-V-E-S, the Frenchy name, wrote all kinds of books about theological stuff in the mid-20th century, but one was called En Français, Le Mystère du Temple. Yep, we Never heard of it. The yeah. Mystery of the Temple, I think it was in 1964. And he, he writes this big theology of what temple theology is, about God wanting to be closer and closer and closer with his people. And it starts out with burning bushes and lightning, and then eventually it becomes present in the room of the, te- of the Temple of Solomon, but then eventually becomes present in us as we be- receive communion. And so we become little temples that go out to the world. It's very beautiful theology. Well, is that enough to get you started? Well, I would also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that at the Liturgical Institute, um, we have the Hillenbrand books, the Hillenbrand series, so you can look at those. They're uh, produced by Liturgical Training Publications, is that right? Yeah, Hillenbrand Books, which is an imprint of Liturgy Training Publications. So you should definitely check those out. And it's named for Reynold Hillenbrand, who himself was kind of a liturgical scholar, uh, same rector of this seminary who wrote and uh, preached about the reform of your heart and mind and the liturgy in the 1950s and 50s in Chicago. So that should get you started for your summer reading projects. Uh, uh, there's so much you, more, though. I so think you have more. more than enough. But, Jesse, thank you for your question. And uh, I know other people had that question as well. So if you want to ask the Liturgy Guys a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute, If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.